0: Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. This is a good one today. I have a raconteur, a gentleman who is a great friend of mine. and I'm in Charleston in South Carolina. And this gentleman is a man who I've known for, I think, maybe seven, eight years now. Oh, yes.
1: It's been seven or eight
0: years. Seven or eight years. He is a first-generation Italian New Yorker who has a big life to talk to us about today. And his name is Anthony Pavoni, but we all call him Tony Pavoni. Is that okay?
1: That's fine, Sean.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tony has uh, lived in a lot of places around America. And as I said, he was a, a first generation Italian American, meaning he was born in New York, but his parents came from Italy. Is that correct?
1: Well, actually, my father came from Italy. He was the immigrant. My mother was born here. She was a first generation American. Her father was an immigrant. My father was an immigrant. Okay. Where in were they America. from in Italy? Well, actually, they were both from a, a similar area, uh, provinces called Marche. It's on the uh, eastern side of Italy, uh, near Bologna. Mountainous country. Um, I've actually visited that area right, to right. see where my father was born. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. The common
0: thing that we have is the Irish and the Italians built New York. Do you believe that?
1: Well, my father, when he first came here in 1920, worked on the road gangs, helping to build a highway system, and uh, they were using tools today that uh, were available at that point, which were shovels, bulldozers, which were very uh, kind of old and archaic. Was
0: he working in Manhattan?
1: Or no, he, out actually, of they, they, they worked um, uh, in, in West Virginia, oh, Pennsylvania, and okay. oh, or... New York. All the uh, roads that, that, that part of the network right now. like uh, US81 was one of the roads they worked on, but it wasn't called US81 at the time. It's called one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just two-lane highways. Yeah, there wouldn't have been many roads. No, yeah, there were yeah. just two-lane highways.
0: What were your early years like, and where, where, tell me a bit about where you were born and what, how sure. you came to be?
1: Eventually, my family, my father and my mother, married in the in the thirties during the depression. I was the last child that they had. I have two sisters who are older but I was born in 1941 in Rochester, New York, but lived in a small suburb called East Rochester. Small town, Italian immigrants settled in there. Spaghetti on Wednesday. Yeah,
0: yeah. Spaghetti on Sunday. Red (laughs) wine.
1: Homemade red wine. There wasn't any liquor stores around to provide you wine. So where'd they get the grapes from? Oh, they'd buy them. They'd buy them by the crates, the grapes. And every, every one of my uncles had his own little wine press in the basement. Is that right? Yeah.
0: yeah. I suppose the Irish were there making puchine mm-hmm. and shit like that for themselves. Moonshine, probably. Moonshine probably. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It was a homemade Italian red. Very sports-minded town. Football, okay. basketball, baseball, golf. It was a huge thing about the, the town because most of the kids, to make money, ended up being caddies. You know, the private golf courses yeah, yeah, around yeah. Rochester. So hey, as you grew up, you had to find a source of money, and your family was pushing you towards finding money because chip in. Yeah, Anthony. Did you chip become in? a caddy? Oh, absolutely. It was it was a fun time because you could play sports, you you could do things into the night. Yeah, you never had to lock safe. your door. Yeah. You were safe. And then on top of that, like I said to you, it was a close knit town, and in the town, you know, if you were a big kid growing up, hey, you're gonna play football. <laughs> were you a big kid? When I got to be a, a freshman and sophomore in high school, yeah, yeah. I became a you know, good sized kid. I was almost six foot, right, 180 pounds. What age are we now
0: at this stage? 15,
1: 16. Right. Okay.
0: So when you were in school, they had an eye on you as a as a what, a, a, a offensive lineman or a
1: Sean? I'm going to be 75. Football back in the 50s, there was no free substitution. So.
0: It was 11 guys against 11 guys with a few it's subs. That's right.
1: Yeah. And you, you took your best 11. I think it'd be
0: better like that now, no?
1: Well, that, that's, those rules have changed. But back then, what you did was you learned the sport. And in football, you went both ways. Both ways meaning you played offense and defense. Yeah. All right. You wrecked. Pardon? You'd be so tired after the end of a game. Well, you're young, you have yeah. a lot of energy, you kept yourself in shape. So we're talking months. about leather
0: helmets now at this stage and just... My,
1: uh, well, I missed... Or leather, leather helmets. helmets. No, 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 no. I missed the leather helmet by about a year or two. Okay. <laughs> All right. I got the first suspension helmets, which were a little bit better than leather. But, yeah.
0: uh, Speaking of the helmet thing while we're on it, what, where, where is your head at, uh, excuse the pun, uh, on the whole... <laughs> what's going on with American football here now. Because it is, it is getting to a point where it's the, the number of people who are very anti-American football from a, a teenage young kid point of view when it gets contact all the way through to the NFL where concussions and stuff are being let right. Where, where do you fit with that? Because you're a lover of the sport.
1: Well, first of all, if you're going to play the sport, there is a risk. I'm not going to sit there and say, "Hey, it, it's a man's game, and that's the way it is." There's a risk. Mm. You, there's a risk for injury. Um, even when I played back in the '60s, a lot of guys had knee problems, ankle problems, some head problems, so mm-hmm. concussions, etc. And, and uh, but but the game has gotten faster. The players are, in some Fitter. cases, massive, and the hitting is harder. Mm. only because they're bigger and they're faster. A lot of the rules that have come out weren't in effect 30, 40 years ago. The helmet-to-helmet the helmet hit. You mm. could do that then. Oh, yeah. Today, ruled against, which is good. Yeah. They're trying to bring the safety into the game, but you're still going to have problems with it. You, 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 you've got to realize that, A, as a player, B, as a family who has a son who wants to play the game, they're going to have to sit there and say, hey, you want to play it, understand the risk, protect yourself as best as you can. Do you believe stay physically fit and, and avoid the, the big hits. Do you believe that it's a
0: fair trade-off? Because if you become a superstar in motor racing, you might die in rugby. In any of these contact they, sports, they, fair, they, they get paid a lot
1: of money now. They do get paid a lot of money. That's why I say you've got to weigh the, the, the risk for the reward. I mean, you see a lot of older players today approaching the 70s. So they, they started their football career back in the 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s. Some are crippled.
0: Van Jacks, yeah. 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 So. And your football career, what, what was that like? What was it well, like I, I when you were like. High,
1: sc- I played in high school and I played in college. So yeah. I like the sport. I like the contact sport. I like the, the fundamentals of the game. Mm. Tackling, blocking, catching a ball, running with it, whatever it might be. But, you know, it wasn't going to be a, a, a profession for me. It was a sport, and, right. and that was it.
0: Uh, and parallel to that, you were also, because of what you talked about earlier with the caddying, you were also a golfer at this stage, yeah? Well, the caddying
1: career <laughs> <laughs> uh, was interesting. I started caddying when I was nine years old. Wow. A little bit of a funny story there. mm if you don't mind I'll share it with you of course Uh, I I was playing in a uh, what they called a a biddy basketball team as a nine year old yeah it was out of a Catholic Youth Association program and uh, one of my coaches like me is you know he, he I, I showed a lot of desire on the floor and I, I was I was a, you know that kid that was I, I want to play let me play yeah me get, get me in there let me in there yes. and, and, and uh, so anyways one day he said to me he said would you like would you like to learn the game of golf uh, we just finished the season basketball was over spring was coming hmm. I says well that's another sport so he says come I'm going to take you out to a golf course with me. And, you know, I'll show you the game. So he takes me out there, and we get to the golf course, and he says, Anthony, see this? Here's the bag. You carry the bag. He right? was cheating. And I'll show you he how the game you. works. <laughs> I'll show you how the game is played. Right. Oh, and I said, okay, I'll carry the bag. <laughs> he just needed it So I there. carried the bag, and he went out and he played a round of golf. And I followed him around with the bag on my shoulder. And we finished the round. He said, well, Donnie, you understand the game? I said, well, yeah, I, I kind of do. Is, is it me carrying a bag? Is that what golf is all about? <laughs> said, well, he says, no, I was showing how I play. You're someday going to play like that. Oh. He said, well, by the way, here's $2 for carrying the bag. I say, hey, I like this. <laughs> it was the first time anybody had ever handed me $2 in money. Yeah. I went home, and my father said, you were you played uh, basketball today? And I said, no, Dad. I went out with my coach. He showed me how to play golf. He says, really? Yeah, and guess what? I took $2 out of my pocket and said, look what he gave me. My father looked at me and said, hmm. Mm. You made $2 for carrying a bag? Mm-hmm. You're going to do more of that, son. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I became a caddy. And when did you move from caddy to actual golf? And how did well, that happen? I, we Caddying, I started caddying. I eventually ended up at a private course. It, 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 there's a lot of humor in this because yeah. you're a young kid. Yeah. My, my father recognized, hey, there's money in this sport. Yeah. Put him to work. Put him to work. <laughs> and by the way, my father made the effort to drive me to the course in the morning to be the first caddy on site. The course wouldn't even open till 8 o'clock, but my father had to get to work at 7.30, so he would take me up there at 7.15. Interesting that we're having this discussion on the
0: day uh, that we lost somebody, right? Who was you told me today? Uh, he was my second idol. Yeah, Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer passed away yesterday, uh, and it, it seemed to be a little bit unexpected. Tell me, tell me why he was your second idol? Well, I actually was your first?
1: my first one was Ben Hogan. I know I'm old right. enough to remember Ben Hogan. Right. You know. I was a 13 year old kid and watching. Professional golf up in Rochester at the U.S. Open, which he lost on the 72nd hole. And to who? Uh, actually, he lost it to a dentist. <laughs> oh, I've heard about this story, Doctor Kerry Middlecoff. Total shock. Yeah, part of growing up, you know, you you you, you have yeah. models in your life, yeah. and you say, "Oh, all right," you know, and uh, but yeah. just
0: just a few little gap So you caddy at nine. I just want to get clear on how you picked up the clubs then, because you started playing. Well, you
1: know, every, every week at the, at the private course, they would say, We're going to give you a Caddies Day. And yeah, yeah. no one played golf on Monday except we'll let the Caddies go out and play. The sun was and That's breaking.
0: important as a Caddy to know yeah, how to absolutely. play. I absolutely. Mean, right, the sun
1: was coming up, and there you are on the first tee. Brilliant. <laughs> and you go out and you play 63 holes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Absolutely, minimum. <laughs> no, as much as you can. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! So, were you? Did you become a good golfer quickly? Not right away. Caddying was a heavy influence for me because mm. I spent an awful lot, a lot of time at the course. In, 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 during the '50s, in, in the local pros would play in a, in a, a local pro-am tournaments. Mm. They could pick up some pocket change. Yeah, and make some money. The local pro at the course that I was at played on a tour back in the 40s. But he, he got married, had a child, mm. and he said, "I can't. you can't make the money on the tour. But he got a very good job as the head professional at this private country club, and they took care of him. I started going there in the, in the early 50s. Believe it or not, I went through high school and college, and I could always get a summer job there whenever I wanted to, working in the pro shop or the caddy master, et cetera. So I hung around the club for quite a few years. Right. He made me his personal caddy. He'd take me to little tournaments around the, the Rochester area. I started looking at him and how he played. I literally tried to copy, copy him. Yeah. yeah, Go home, stand in front of a full-length mirror, and try to duplicate the swing. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: Are you saying that you have seen people you think could have become really great but decided to have a family and settle down?
1: They ended up with a family. And, and, and by the way, they, they, they looked for stability. You weren't going to make money on the, on the golf tour. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the history of golf in America in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the pros Pittance, were, yeah. the pros in many cases were getting beaten by the amateurs. Bobby Jones was an amateur. All right? Yeah. He was quite frankly, in a way, more popular than the pros. Because the U.S. loves an underdog.
0: What was, segueing away from golf and sport for a second, what was America like in the 50s when you can remember it versus
1: today? Well, pace was slower. You had time to uh, look at life and. Kind of educate yourself on the decision-making process that might help you today it's a it's rapid it's fast moving you got to be quicker i think you have to be sharper mm. you better be sharper back then you could take a guy like myself i could play three sports but i had no intention or th- i never thought of well i'm going to be a professional football player golf i probably had a better shot at it at the time that would have been the a, a, a one sport that I might have been able to make it, but I, you never thought about it. Not really. It was presented to me at one point, yeah, by some of the members of the course. They, they said we could sponsor you. They had PGA schools and things of that nature, and I said, gentlemen, I've already got a career going on. No, it wasn't a career. It was my next move. Yeah, let's put Tell it me that way. Tell me your way. next move. What well, was after college? Um, what did you do in college? I majored in history and poli-sci. Qualification of that job is either I was going to become a teacher or I would have had it going into law school. I had no desire for either. (laughs) I knew I did not want to become a teacher, and I knew I did not want to become a lawyer, which meant, hey, you either go in the business world, work at something, and I wasn't even keen on that. So I I took some physicals and exams, and I went to, to apply to the OCS program in the Marine Corps. Okay. I held off from signing on because I wanted to spend my summer after graduating making sure I was making the right move
0: what was the appeal to be a marine in the Marine Corps oh, was,
1: yeah, I had a lot of uh, older cousins who had served in, in the military not in the Marine Corps necessarily but yeah. in the military they fought in World War II these were older cousins yeah. guys who were probably maybe 15 years older than me
0: so we're slap bang in the middle of the Cold War right now it was it's early. An... It was
1: 1964.
0: Wow, okay, so after Kennedy was.
1: Oh yeah, it was after the assassination. Yeah. It was in fact, it was right after the assassination because he got assassinated in December. 63, November yeah. 63, November 63 in Dallas. There had always been that that thing about well, you know, yeah. I, I could always serve my country. I could no. always because I, I would find it to be an honor to serve my country. Mm. The Marines were on campus recruiting. And uh, I had some friends that had already made the decision to move into the Marine Corps. So I decided to go for an interview. Got, went through the interview, did the tests, passed them all. They said, we want to swear you. And I said, you're going to have to wait until I graduate. Um, and that was a requirement. Yeah. You know They, they knew that. So I held off. Uh, got into the summer of 64. I was having a good time, college was over, I had my degree, I was working at the course, playing golf an awful lot, I was 22 years old, uh, I was in good shape, Greens thought I was anyways. So uh, I got towards the end of the summer and my family had gone on a trip so I was all home alone. The Gulf of Tonkin, and I remember I was a history major, so the, the Gulf of Tonkin happened in that August of 60, uh, 64. But it was, you know, today it'd be all over the place. Yeah. But, you know, I said to you that the times were different. You'd yeah. caught an article in the newspaper. And, and people said, Gulf of Tonkin, where's that? We had a something happen there? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to the golf course tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the time went on. I had made a decision I said my mother and father were coming home shortly. I want to put this behind me. I don't want them to be involved in the decision. Because I I knew they they would be pulling at me not to do it. I knew that. So I made the decision in late August. And I went down to Syracuse, New York because I had to be sworn in down there. They ran two classes a year for the OCS program back then. The requirements for Marine officers. Explain to
0: people who don't know what OCS means.
1: Officer Candidate School. Right. Uh, it's a training program at Quantico, Virginia. Family came home, not too happy about the decision. Why? Again. Well, it, 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 it's it's a thing about, they feel if you're in the military, you're going to possibly die. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can drive in a car nowadays, you could possibly die. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. But you're more
0: likely to die if you're in the Marines.
1: Well, you, you know, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Maybe. Well...
0: Tell me what happened though. You joined the Marine. I joined Marine. Where was your head at? Was there any fear?
1: Fear? No. Uh, the only thing that, that I would fear is failing to fulfill my mission, yeah. which was to become a Marine officer. I saw a lot of guys not make it. I mean, we started with four hundred candidates in my class. One hundred ninety-eight graduated.
0: One and two leave. Yeah. Well, you don't,
1: Some don't leave immediately because you made, you made a commitment, so they end up becoming enlisted men for two years minimum. So there's a, an impetus to accomplish it. You want to get it done. What was it
0: like the day you got it? The
1: first day. Yeah. Huh. Was it on March twenty second, nineteen sixty five? There you go. You, said it. you, like you said it just like my wedding day. All <laughs> right. For, it was ten weeks of. Uh, physical exertion at 10 weeks was as tough a camp that I've ever been in. And I've been in some good football camps. Plus a high mixture of military uh, skills uh, skill sets uh, firing weapons uh, learning how to use weapons. Strategy. I'm definitely what we call uh, uh, platoon leader corps type uh, strategies from learning how to become a, uh, a lieutenant Running a squad to a platoon to a company, you had squad tactics, platoon tactics, company tactics, all based on uh, some form of combat uh, situations.
0: Was this amazing at the time for you?
1: Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, did
0: you feel like you found something you really loved?
1: I, I didn't mind the, the physicality of it all. In fact, it was after I got into it, 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 and it took me a while to get into the physicality because it was a, it was a different physicality versus playing football. Mm-hmm. You, your body had to be in, 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 in fine tuned condition. You you had to uh, you had to be sharp with your body.
0: But they have taught you how to survive torture and stuff like that. Or?
1: Well, as time went on, uh, during my tour tours of duty, you had a class in Vietnamization. And also, part of that class was, was what would happen if you were captured, how yeah. to handle yourself. Yeah. And things of that nature. But that, that was further down the line. Preparing yourself for, for any eventuality that might come along.
0: And then an eventuality came along.
1: Well, yeah, I did a tour in Vietnam. <laughs>
0: how much do you want to talk about that? You don't have to if you don't want to. Well,
1: it's. It, 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 you know, you, you,
0: There's people who listen to this podcast who don't even know what Vietnam was.
1: Um, well, I, I don't know if you want me to give them a history lesson. Yeah, well, but I, I, I wouldn't Vietnam mind a quick. Was, Vietnam was the first question. One of the questions is a political question, Yeah. which is okay because it's, it's now 45, 50 years later. And the second aspect of it then turned into a military issue. The political question centers around America's fighting communism. Correct. Communism is evil. Communism is creeping into other countries. Vietnam was one of those issues. Uh,
0: Robert McNamara, who yes. would have been one of your... He was the director. of He
1: was the defense secretary for the United States. At the time. At the time. And he
0: has this movie called The Fog of War where he kind of almost apologizes on um, in a weird way. But but McNamara said, said, you're exactly right, that America was worried that Vietnamese was going to turn communist through China and he met his counterpart many years later who said at a dinner, what were you guys thinking? We, we've we been fighting the Chinese all our lives and we were never going to let them in.
1: Which is very true. Vietnam at one time was what they called French Indochina.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: After World War II group of communists began a fight against the French who still controlled Correct. the New China. And their fight was for independence. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the primary role of becoming communistic. Mm-hmm. It was for independence. America Nothing to do with that. Well, we did because we were supplying the French. <laughs> okay. Alright, we were. Yeah. We were supplying the French. We were helping them to go back to becoming French Indochina, the Vietnamese were saying, "Hey, or a group of Vietnamese were saying, "Look, we want our independence." Mm-hmm. It just so happened they were communists. But there was another group there that wanted independence too, but they weren't communists. They were the, quote, "people that said, "Well, we want a democracy in their yeah. minds. They wanted a democracy." That's a long story
0: let's go back to the personal thing you said two things happen so let's forget the political thing because you're right we, there's not, there's yeah. no, we're not going to fix right. that the, the, what was it like for you second point the second point i asked was what was it like for you when suddenly okay now action is about to happen and you're on a plane over to vietnam
1: <laughs> well yeah a uh, lot of unknowns uncertainties and I had some, in, not an inkling, I had a pretty good idea of what we were dealing with. I was going in with my own unit, too, by the way.
0: So you were in control of
1: the unit at this stage? I was going in. Yeah. Right. How many people in the unit? It was part of the uh, 9th Marine Amphibious Brigade. It was a whole brigade going in. Uh, you had air support. You had uh, both the fixed-wing rotary support, motor transport. You, you had supply. You had infantry was uh, sure.
0: are we talking like a couple of thousand people oh easily right, I mean, in fact okay. we
1: took over a base right. a, a portion of a base when we went in what, was, was, your, what was your
0: head and heart saying when you landed first in vietnam to yourself stay
1: alive really that's simple. well you, you, everyone's gonna you know we, you, you have to have that emotion inside of you i was at a base in what they call I Corps. it's the northernmost province of uh, Vietnam. I was at a base called Chu Lai. It's on the uh, China Sea. To, uh, China Beach, around there. China Beach runs all the way from yeah, Chu Lai up yeah, to yeah. Da Nang. A big base. Mm-hmm. The Americans had come in there in 66, uh, I believe it was, the first Marines. Mm. They came into Da Nang, they came into Chu Lai, and they had other uh, bases around uh, the, uh, the I Corps, as we called it. By the time I got there it was 67, the base was even larger than it was when they first went in. We had a 10,000 foot airstrip built, massive uh, troop deployments coming in through July. squadrons of Marines, uh, fighter units, uh, helicopter, uh, you name it. Part of my responsibility was defense protection. It, it, it settled into a, a, a day of, you know, the day and night, rocket attacks, mortars, etc. A lot of probing by the enemy. Uh, to a certain degree, it was everyday living. You, you had some issues, meaning some guys were getting killed on the line. But it, it also was a day-to-day boredom. Yeah. Waiting towards uh, the end of my tour almost not quite the end of my tour but uh, 1968 the Tet Offensive hit and the Vietnamese the North Vietnamese felt this was going to topple the whole government and it was it was a little hot mm. but I'll say it to you in a nice way we kicked the living daylights out of them that was a turning point Politically in America what came back was oh my god we were supposed to be safe and the thing was being stabilized yep. but that's not the way it was presented when it came back to the United States that's the that's where the politics and the military didn't I... mesh one thing I'll say to you Sean I've put that behind me even though I had some friends good friends I think I want to call them who didn't make it home mm-hmm it took me a while to to adjust to that process of why what happened why did it happen but it's past me now let's just move
0: on because well, we're again we're not gonna we, we don't need to go into it in huge nah, detail but you, you come
1: home tell me what it was like coming home well first of all <laughs> it was a nice experience to leave yeah I bet yeah you know I came back in uh, April of uh, 1968. I remember coming into LAX. It was four in the morning. I think it was April 1. Yep. What stuck in my head was, geez, we're coming into LAX. But the plane is way, way out on the tarmac. Not the main terminal. And buses were coming out to load the troops into the buses and take them out the back door because oh, there was protesters well you know it, it, by the way I had been over overseas for over a year so my the, the the only thing I saw were the Stars and Stripes newspaper
0: you know <laughs> which would be a bit one-sided <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well you, it got, you know listening. the only
1: good thing about it is I get the baseball scores in there well indeed but they were two days old yeah
0: <laughs> no internet, no mobile phones. No, no, no,
1: no, no. It was a different world.
0: But Do you think th- technology would have helped you? In the like the, the technology we have today, where everything's, yeah, in that war, people knowing what's going on, people being able to video uh, what's going on. You, you, you have to deal
1: with it now and then. And then the, the issue, Vietnam was, well. I'm not speechless on the subject. Trust me, it's You're just being that, careful. Well, it, it's not even a question of careful. It's it was it was something that that maybe shouldn't have happened. It did happen. Yeah. If it was going to happen, which it did do, we should either stay with the commitment. you really follow it carefully. It was the Congress hmm. that pulled the rug, the plug out hmm. on the South Vietnamese. One thing I should add to that. I trained with the South Vietnamese in my OCS program. They were sending their, their they were sending their officers, South Vietnamese Marine officers, to Quantico for training. Some of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. Mm. South Vietnamese Marines. I, I don't even want to think what took place and what happened to those individuals.
0: But it's it's many years past. So you're home. I'm home. You then set up, you you then decide to go into business.
1: Well, no, no. No, no, you don't. I I come back and I said, well, where am I going to live? Where am I going to live? Obviously, I got to go back to Rochester to say hello to my family. Of course. Uh, But I I mustered out of the Marines. Uh, I said they they wanted me to stay in. Mm -hmm. I said no, and my commitment is fulfilled. I said that's not for me. I I want to see what the rest of the world looks like. I know what I'm leaving. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure where I'm going, but I know the direction I'm going. Right. And I came home. Uh, My family wanted me to move back uh, to Rochester. I said, nah, I need some lights. Meaning what? I just spent a year overseas. It was course, <laughs> dark, yeah. Well, yeah. it was dark at night, man. Yeah, 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 brilliant. <laughs> I, I need some lights. I want to see lights 24 hours a day.
0: Was this Manhattan? That's Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs>
1: brilliant. <laughs> and, and I did. I moved into the uh, West Village. There I was, probably the only Marine in the West Village at the time. I had a, uh, a railroad flat on Spring and Thompson, one hundred and seventy-five dollars a month rent. Wow! Right? You, you couldn't t- touch that with four figures right now, probably.
0: Right. Absolutely right. It's probably it's probably the same. It, by the way, it's it.
1: now called Soho. Right? Back then, it was yeah, eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the West Village. There was nothing down there. Yeah. I mean, there was. Uh, we starting from scratch. Well, I had some, you know, I had, I had some... Had quick, money from, I, yeah. Well, yeah, I did. I had a nice... Well, remember I was in Vietnam for, yeah. you know, 12 months, whatever it was, and uh, all my pay was just being banked. Combat pay, which was $75 a month. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's putting 175 a month in perspective, isn't it? <laughs> so what did you decide to do then? What was your... Where was well, your head
1: for the first couple of months, I said, I'm on Iron R. I was just going to enjoy have fun. New York.
0: Yeah, but a lot of people came back, we know, with, which wasn't even a thing then, but with post traumatic stress. And did you have any of those things happen to you?
1: My sleeping wasn't so hot. Mm. Uh, I remember visiting my mother's sister, who was living on Long Island at the time. She says, uh, About three or four days after I'd been there, I was sleeping on a couch. She says, Anthony, you're a wreck. I says, What do you mean? She says, You jump almost every every minute. Mm. I says, Barbara, and her name is Barbara. I says, Barbara, you know what? I probably am a wreck. Mm. If you'd been to Vietnam and, and you know you, you keep one eye open almost all the time and you worry about the troops, you you see things that you, you, you just kind of push out of your mind and move into the next minute, let that last minute go away. Yes, I am a wreck. Mm.
0: How did you put your life back on a keel then?
1: Well, I, like I said, I, I threw myself, came into New York, got myself an apartment. Two or three weeks later, I said, well, let me, let me go test the market for jobs, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I found a, an organization called Lenman Associates. I even remember the name. It was on 42nd Street and uh, 5th Avenue. It's early June 1968 Yeah, yeah The news is, is blaring out you know, Vietnam is still hot Martin Luther King was killed in April Bobby Kennedy was killed in June Politics was crazy Seems like we're reliving that We are a bit I went up to Lineman Associates I had a 10 a.m. appointment In the um, lobby of the building Someone taps me on my shoulder Turn around, it was an old fraternity brother of mine that I hadn't seen in four years. And he had a nickname, Feathers. And I said, Feathers? What are you doing here? He said, I got an appointment upstairs. I said, Who are you gonna see? Lemon Associates. I says, For what? I says, I need a job. Where have you been? Says, ah, I was in the Navy. Oh my god. He was a SEAL. Vietnam no matter what you know there's saloons alive at 10 o'clock course, in the morning mostly course. Irish saloons of course thank so you at least we did, did something for society so we, we didn't make that appointment that morning we headed out we caught up well right. the next couple of weeks that's all we did was head out <laughs> you became a businessman though tell well, me well, got how a job. quickly got, you became a businessman well yeah, I got a job through Lehman Associates I went to work for American Express but it was my first job yeah. in the business world yeah Mm-hmm. And we were the first class in the credit card division management program.
0: After, Reason being probably because credit cards were just being invented. Exactly. Yeah. You're right.
1: The, the the good thing about that job is I ended up working in in the sales group. I handled all along island restaurants, airlines, That's shops, okay. yeah, yeah. you know, etc. I had to sign them up.
0: How many years did you spend with the I expect? 2 years. Tony moved then to Xerox and then became
1: a... I spent seven years at Xerox. I worked up through both the sales division group Mm. into management Mm. and eventually became a trainer also. And from that point on, I made a decision that there are maybe greener pastures on the other side of the fence. I went to a competitor, uh, worked three years as a national manager at this competitor, grew their business from zero to $50 decided, hey, if I can do that, you can I can do run your my own thing. business. And eventually I hooked up with, a, with two other gentlemen and we went into business in the early 80s in the New York market, selling office products.
0: And that business lasted for?
1: Well, I sold it actually um, in the late 80s, early mm. 90s. Late 80s, I bought out my partners. And uh, made a couple of acquisitions in the 90s. Well, it was good. It was good. We, we, we got our sales up to $35 million. But 1996, I had a heart attack at the age of 54. Why? <laughs> Why? Shawnee, It's a great question. You know what I did, though? That night of my heart attack, as I was laying in that hospital... And it was dark in the hospital because yeah. it was January. When those lights are flashing all over the place because I'm wired up, I said the same thing. How did I get here? How did I get here? And I said to myself, guess what? It's time to move on to something else in life because life is too precious to waste my time selling copiers. And I made a decision. At that point, I will sell the company as quick or as possible, as fast as I could.
0: You were married at this stage? With oh, two I was children. married.
1: I had two children. Both of them were in college at the time.
0: Yeah. How quickly did you sell the company then?
1: I had a, a young executive in the company who worked with me. He was also a neighbor of mine. He was a great guy. And uh, he pulled together some investors over time and was able to, to pull off the purchase. Uh, he bought it in 2001. I kept a piece of the company, which was down here in Charleston, but then again, I sold that by 2003 when I finally got down here.
0: What do you say to the a the young Tony Pavoni and b anyone who might be a young Tony Pavoni out there today? Are you proud of what you did?
1: I'm very proud. Yeah, you know, Sean, I'm looking at a photo, uh, it's it's a, uh, a photograph of my father's picture on the wall over here he was uh, he was probably around 19 or 20 at the time and when I was growing up in you know that small town I remember he was a road worker but he always kind of focus on doing something more than just being a road worker he became a manager and when I say a manager he was actually called the boss of a, a, a shipping gang in a piano factory, which was one of the largest piano factories in the country back in the 50s. So his people and him mm-hmm. were responsible for packing those pianos and putting them on trucks, trains, etc., and shipping them throughout the United States. He didn't have a computer then, mm-hmm. but he had a big log book. He'd bring it home with them. And in his handwriting, you could see what he was shipping and where he was shipping it. Remember, this is a guy that only got through fourth grade. If I could say anything to the young kids today, you probably can get a lesson from a person like him who said, look, I'm going to have a focus, but it's going to be in front of me, and I'm going to drive to it. That focus has always been there for that man, and quite honestly, the focus has always been there for me. Drive towards it. Have I made mistakes. Heck yeah. I've learned from them. I try not to make them again or the same ones again. Drive towards your focus, or better than that is don't 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 run away from something. Run towards something.
0: That's a great way to end the podcast. That was a great journey you wrote me on, Anthony Pavoni. Thank you very much for welcome, for uh, allowing me into your house. Tony is one of the greatest, not only raconteurs, as you heard, but he's a very generous guy. He's a guy who, uh, he's one of the greatest guys to go on a pint with. So if you're ever in Charleston, you know who to look up. Tony, look after yourself and thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Thanks,
0: Sean.